Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is, well, more than weekly now, but this episode is a news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about the world of books and reading. This is episode 334. We're recording on Thursday, October 10th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. This is a real test of our metal and willpower and the new format because... We have big book news this week, but we are not going to talk about it except to say that it happened. I'm actually very pleased that we're not talking about it yet because I need more research time. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do too. It is nice because we'd be scrambling and we'd basically be regurgitating NPR um, news, press releases, Nobel press releases. The, the double Nobel happened, which I guess there was a non-zero chance in my mind that it wasn't going to happen. I didn't realize it until I was like, oh, it did happen yeah. today. That, that was in the back of my mind. That is exactly the feeling that I had, and it's why it came out this way in our agenda for this mm. show of like the double Nobel actually occurred, um, that they had said they would award two, but you know, like there was a year we thought we were getting a Nobel and then we didn't. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Um, I thought it was possible that they could have said, we tried to pick two and we just settled on this one. And so we'll do two next year or whatever, like on some reality competition so like one of these weeks we're going to eliminate two people and then you're always waiting for them to decide like when the week is i thought maybe nobel might do that of like one of these years we'll give out two but not this year um yeah so that happened it happened we can just do the the names um double nobels um i'm so sorry about pronunciations um the polish author olga tokachuk i think but i could be wrong about that um, and then the Australian author, Peter Hanke. So luckily, the Nobel has um, righted many years of wrongs of not giving awards to white European <laughs> authors. So I'm glad to see, glad to see Oh, yeah. That. He's Austrian, not Australian. Oh, sorry. Austrian. So they're both Europeans. Um, yeah. So that's, that's good. I'm glad we got... Is this, can sarcasm break my mic? Because that was heavy. That was a big one. That was a heavy... <laughs> I think we'd have found that out by now. Yeah, that's 334 true. episodes. So there's the news. We're going to talk about the the situation with Nobel. We're going to look into those authors, give you some more background in our next bonus episode, um, and get into it uh, a little bit there, which we haven't before. A little listener feedback in the ongoing Macmillan library stuff. I'm just looking at my notes, Rebecca. Mm. I'm sorry I didn't put this in oh, the no. agenda. Oh, no. Hit me. Some more people disagreeing with, um, you know, being disappointed, disagreeing with me and you and Vanessa not taking it as seriously as they want us to, uh, mm. a lot of come, largely coming from librarians and understandably so, but some other interested parties. And I think we might just disagree on it to some degree, but there was a pattern I saw in one of the listeners, I, I don't have the name in front of me, I'm sorry, but thank you for saying it, kind of hung a lantern on one of the concerns, which is more of a slippery slope argument. Mm. It's this Macmillan thing they don't love, but uh, as a harbinger of what might come next, they really are worried about. So the example being, well, what if there's important nonfiction like test preps or study guides or other oh, things that okay. A, aren't just released, but B, maybe wouldn't be made available at all to libraries. And I think, as we know with Slippery Soap arguments, it's a, it's a logical fallacy for a reason because it can be deployed unhelpfully or unreasonably. I think this is one of those situations where I don't know that it changes my opinion about this current situation, but I would concede if there came a time when, say, Macmillan, you know what, none of our nonfiction is going to be available to the libraries, I would change my tune because the facts of the case would be different in that particular yes. situation. And just uh, go ahead. Yeah, just hearing this since we I didn't get prep on um, yeah. that feedback, I agree. That's yeah. a different, like, if we were in a different world, I would have a different opinion. Yeah. And I should say and give myself opportunity here to voice something that some people talk about, but I'm really upset about, frankly is Audible not making their Audible originals available to libraries. Um, yes. I was looking for a book called 10 Drugs, A History of Medicine and 10 Drugs, which is just my thing. It's each a chapter is <laughs> like a drug. And what, and I was going to get it through Libby, or be on hold. It's like, I'm not urgent to, you know, I'm, I'm not 
I can wait. I can wait if it's there's a wait on Libby. I go, it's not available there. I look on Audible because I'm like, well, is it even is there even an audiobook? And it's an Audible original, so I've got I've got to shell out for it. I think that to me, I'd like to hear. I honestly would like to hear feedback from librarians here. Why am I not getting a petition about that? And I am getting a petition about Macmillan just um, delaying. I, I'm not asking. That's not a rhetorical question. I'm genuinely curious. Like, why so much outrage about the Macmillan just throttling it and audiobooks not being available at all to libraries? I haven't heard a word about. Do you, do you have an idea, yeah, Rebecca? Really, do you, I have no yeah. idea. I have no idea other than maybe there's a perceived difference between something from a general publisher that goes out to the public, like, you know, that's the thing we're used to is publishers make books, they go out to the public, you can either buy them or get them from the library. And Audible might feel different to people because Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a gated service. Like, um, but by that argument, like, the Wall Street Journal is gated and you can walk into like if you want to read it online you have mm-hmm. to pay um, but you can walk into your library on any day and find a copy of it um, and I think that's how it should be I agree that what audible the audible originals are like um, didn't we see that Scribd was doing some original content yeah. at some point like all of that should be made available to libraries and it might be harder for people to get or like they may have longer wait times if that company who's that does the exclusive membership stuff wants to make it more expensive or harder for libraries to get them, but it should be available. And I, I feel like there, this feels like one of those gaps where there must be nuance to the argument that we're missing. Like I want to give the librarians the benefit of the doubt. No, that's why it's an honest question. Yeah. And credit for that there. Yeah. Like it's, but it's confusing why there's not Mm -hmm. push for that, or maybe there is push for it and we're just not seeing it. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's Macmillan and not Amazon. I mean, it could be, I mean, it could be some of that too. It might also feel like Macmillan is a like Macmillan is a giant you can throw stones at and maybe have an effect um, where it could feel like you know the Goliath of Amazon is not worth fighting. Yeah, it could be that I can get ten drugs in ebook and print from my library. I think I did. I honestly didn't go check to see if it was available at all. I assume so. It's from a big five publisher. The which one escapes me. So maybe it's like, well, you can get an ebook or a print book from the library. The audio only edition, not such a big deal. But as we talked, Vanessa and I talked about last week, a lot of people are listening to audiobooks. A lot of people, mm-hmm. especially if you have accessibility situations, that's, that's books to you. Um, and I'm, I like Audible. I think Audible has been wonderful for reading culture writ large just because of what it's done for audiobooks and how audiobooks have been so, frankly, personally key to my own reading life and reading lives mm-hmm. of other people I know. But this part of it, I really don't like. And We've talked about people signing exclusive deals with Amazon. Was it Mindy Kaling we talked about last time? And I'm sure her book will be an Audible original that you're not Mm going to be able to get through your library. And Amazon is bigger than Macmillan. Um, So I'd be curious to hear from librarians. Maybe maybe there was a petition and I missed it. I'd like to know that. If there's some other feature, I would know. Um, but that's really that's that's the end of the slippery soap argument we're sort of talking about, right? Like we Mm -hmm. don't have to imagine a situation where a publisher doesn't make it available because right. we see we this. Have it. We right. have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, there's some listener feedback there. Um, I should say there's been vo- a couple of votes for Jurassic Park as our next book, next book nerd movie club. Can't promise anything, but just to convey to the listeners that that seems to be the one people are, are the most interested in next. I guess it makes sense. It's the most popular movie of any of the, I mean, it's kind of a regression to the mean, right? What's the most popular movie you've th- flowed out there? That's yep. the one that's going to get the most votes. Mm-hmm. So not a surprise. Thought that was interesting as well. Let's do a sponsor, and then we'll get to to some more. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. 
This is an edge of your seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary, you know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Our news. Okay. Uh, where do you want to go? We don't have. Well, I guess the lead. Well, hmm. I don't know if there's a lead. <laughs> the Nobel would be the thing in our A block here, but now we're not doing that, so we are going to yeah. go down well, the list, which is kind of cool. We in could. A way. S- yeah, we could stay in awards land just briefly, yeah. and I do think it will be brief um, because we're now in this thing where we're not somehow neither of us is tending to read a bunch of the books that get nominated for awards but the national book award shortlists the finalists were released this week um so that is happening and in fiction the finalists are trust exercise by susan Choi, sabrina and karina stories by khalif fajardo onstein black leopard red wolf by marlon james the other americans by layla lavami and disappearing earth by Julia Phillips, notably mm-hmm. from the long lists, the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead did not make the cut. I'm honestly very surprised. Um, again, I haven't read much fiction year, this year, but I have read the Nickel Boys. I thought it was wonderful. Um, if I had to pick a book, I would have bet on that one. And then on Earth, we're brief, briefly gorgeous. I would have expecting to see here, yes. though I'm more surprised Nickel Boys isn't. Yeah, I was expecting to see both of those, um, neither of which I've read yet, but they are on the pile for my end of year holiday sprint through books I just didn't get to. Um, But I really expected to see both of those. I'm deeply surprised not to see Colson Whitehead there based on all of the discussion around that book and the accomplishment that it seems to be. And interesting. I mean, we'll never know you know, no. why that And happened, I, I should say, I'm not mad about it. I'm just yeah, surprised. It's you know. super interesting. It's super interesting. It's a beautifully diverse fiction list, though. And so that's that's great to see. It is um, interesting, too, that you mentioned the diversity of the list. Suzanne Choi, um, uh, Marlon James, Leila Lamy, and Kali Farhado Anstein, I believe. Uh, Fajardo, yes. I think I mispronounced that. Um, mm-hmm. So a very interesting list from uh, in terms of identity, but also underneath that a homogenous list in terms of publisher where mm-hmm. four of the five finalists are penguin random house so it's an interesting question like is this a sign that the the talk over the last 5 to 10 years about publishing becoming more diverse in who it publishes giving voice to to communities and and authors that wouldn't in times past have the opportunities they do now is this a sign of? Is this the promise? Is this what the promised land looks like to some degree, or is it the NBA, the National Book Award, sort of having an intervention, saying, "Okay, here's everything PRH does, and we're going to be we're going to be looking at the whole waterfront and try not to have the kind of biases and um, constraints that have been happening in the past, or a little th- column A and column B, I guess." Yeah, possible. I think it's a, I think it's a mixture of both, but I think it's more of column. B. Hmm. That um, my guess would be if we looked at the hard numbers about like what percentage of books that come out from the big five publishers are by people of color, um, that that has increased over the last several years, but not probably not by like a large percentage, maybe meaningfully, like if it went from and I'm making up numbers now, but like if it went from two to four you know, 2% to 4% or 4% to 8%, like that's a doubling, but it would still be very low. Um, And like, and 
that's not enough to just naturally flood the nominations lists with books by people of color. Um, But I think that there must be something going on at national book awards and the Pulitzer and like conversations happening among people who run Mm -hmm. these organizations that are built to recognize achievements in art um, saying like, we have to do more than just look at like, what are the big books that publishers send us and that they spend a lot of money advertising so that we're aware of like Mm. uh, for many, many years, a lot of the book awards just felt like, but pretty predictably, like these are the top of mind literary fiction titles and you could guess them in advance because those were the lit fic titles that publishers were putting a lot of dollars behind and that were critically acclaimed and sort of got that. They got like all, they rang all the buttons around the cycle Yeah, right. <laughs> of, um, of this is good and people like it and we're spending a lot of money to keep people talking about it. And then when they pick it up, they like it and they read it and they talk about it more and, the, and then you run in those cycles. And I think that there's more attention being paid to, um, to in, like to intentionally diversifying lists, but also more attention being paid to who is on the judging panels for mm. these lists. And this magical thing happens when you don't just have a bunch of straight white people judging your books of fiction and seeing stories that reflect themselves back that you get um, more diverse selections as well. And I think that's probably what's happening more, that it's more the result of intentional work on the part of curators, for lack of a better term, gatekeepers, um, than it is reflective of a massive growth in the industry. But I do think the industry is growing in this direction, just not in a big enough way yet for it to be that that's the explanation for how these lists end up so diverse. So it's not like a trickle up situation where there's more available titles. And so just by nature, there'll be more um, marginalized authors showing up in these lists. I think there are more available titles, but not enough more for that to be the explanation. Yeah, Yeah. and maybe it's a little bit of both. And if you have a combinatorial inputs, then you can have an out-of-scale output, right? right? Like, you know, a little more on both ends of the, the pipeline for awarding these things. Um, it is interesting, though, that this isn't even a surprise to see a list look like this anymore. I think that's notable, mm-hmm. even if we've sort of forgotten, or I'll, I'll speak for myself, even if I've sort of forgotten to notice it in, in, a, in a surprising way. It's like, okay, this is how it should be. This is how it is now. Very interesting. All right, where do you want to go from here? You know, hmm... Interesting stuff this week. Let's go to Michelle Obama news. Is this part of her advance, that giant advance, this book? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Oh, tell the people what it is first. I okay. jumped the gun. Yeah, what's um, the actual news before I get to Michelle wild Obama is releasing a guided journal. It's called "Becoming: A Guided Journal for Discovering Your Voice." In no- it's coming out in November, and it goes along uh, as a companion from her best-selling memoir becoming. Uh, The release date in particular is November 19th, if that is the thing that you're looking for. Uh, Publishers said that it's going to be filled with insights, more than 150 inspiring questions and quotes that resonate with the key themes from the memoir and are designed to help you reflect on personal and family history, goals, challenges, and dreams, what moves you, what brings you hope, um, and what future you imagine for yourself and your community. Um, so that is what's happening and they dropped it as like a surprise. This is coming out next month, but I would suspect it's been in the works for a while, given, um, not only that Michelle Obama probably doesn't have time to do things by surprise, but also that production for journals and books like this takes a long time. Um, I hadn't thought about that. I guess it probably is part of her advance. Well, the first print run for the journal is 500,000 copies, which is Testaments, right? We talked about 500 uh for the Testaments Mm -hmm. um, and expects it to be a big gift book for the holiday season. I guess it makes sense. Um, There's a post on the site I'll put in the show notes, bookwrite.com slash listen on our site um, that actually put together that includes some of the images that are on the Amazon product page. And it looks like each, I don't know, double page spread. You open it up on the left-hand side, there's a quote from Mm -hmm. Becoming... And then sort of a writing prompt. So I think it's a kind of thing you could turn around. Did, did Michelle Obama actually do anything with this? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. But there's certainly enough copies. I wonder, if they, I wonder, though, if they had it in the works before Becoming became such a huge hit. Did they know Becoming was going to do that? I've wondered about this, too. Was Becoming where on the scale of over, under, or at perform for the advance that Random House gave the Obamas did, did Becoming... Sh- yeah, uh, perform. I, mean, I don't know. 
11 million copies worldwide. It has to be overperformed, but they got a, what, $65 million advance? Yeah, but I mean, but 11 million copies. I think they knew it was going to be big. There were, I would suspect that pre-orders maybe tipped them off um, of like, oh, right. we, we should even start thinking about a journal or a companion mm. books campaign. Like maybe this wasn't explicit in the book deal of there will be a memoir and a journal. But I also wouldn't be surprised to find out that it was in the deal because it's not news that Michelle Obama is incredibly inspiring and that a lot of people look to her for leadership and for, you know, an example of how to set your goals really clearly and move through difficult things and accomplish, like overcome challenges and accomplish things. She's just a remarkable example of that. And she tells so many stories about it in the book, but you also don't need to have had the book or to have read the book to have that impression of her and that understanding. Like, there's a very smart note here in Ashley's piece that the Obama organization last week sent an email to attendees of her book tour events from last fall, reminiscing on the highlights of the tour and the conversations that it started and like hinting at being in touch with more. And they're probably going to follow that up with like, here's the more we were talking about. You loved my book tour event. Now you can get this journal. Like I went to one of those book tour events at a giant arena in Washington, DC and like, just the excitement of everybody around us to see her and talking about her and the amount of inspiration and sort of the depth of connection that like people who love Michelle Obama really love her. Um, this is man. I think they might've undershot it with 500,000 in the first printing. Well, I guess. Okay. So 11 million copies. Do we, is that print copies? Do we know? Or is that total? Uh, it just has 11 million copies sold worldwide. So it's got to be total yeah. because this is a print product. Like it's a journal where you write in it. Mm-hmm. So it's not an ebook and it's not an audiobook. I know a lot of people that did Becoming as an audiobook. So that's true. Are you going to cross the, the, the genre div- or the medium divide to get over here? I don't know. I guess you only need 5% of that 11 million to sell out your first print run. Yeah, it's an interesting, I think a guided journal like this is an interesting beast in general, because like, it makes a great gift book. And it's very smart for this to be released right before the holiday season. Like the percentage of readers who would opt themselves into a guided journal is probably Uh. relatively small. But the percentage of gift givers who were like, standing in Barnes and Noble looking like this thing is going to be in the impulse display Mm. on the way to the cash wrap, you know, at Barnes and Noble, I would put hard money on that, that like you're noodling around trying to decide what to get someone. And it's like, oh, here's a Michelle Obama guided journal. Perfect. Um, It's ideal for that. Like there's, I don't think there's going to be a pure Venn diagram, like circle overlap of readers of Becoming and people who bought the journal, but there's an interesting sort of like other market for this where you could give this book to someone who didn't read Becoming Mm. or that you're not sure if they read Becoming, but you know they like inspirational, journal-y kinds of things. You know, I would never give someone a journal as a gift. It's it's the emotional equivalent of giving someone a dog as a gift because it's really, (laughs) you got to take care. This is work. You're giving them just a huge pile of forward-looking work. Well, to but do you're here. also never going to know if they use it or not. <laughs> like, what percentage of journals blank? Oh my god, are go, so go many. Ninety-five so percent of pages yes. are unfilled in. Even by people who buy them for themselves. Like yeah. I'm a relatively routine journaler, and I still have stacks of empty ones that were bought like aspirationally. Yeah, <laughs> I don't do this with journals. I do it with notebooks because if I just if I find just the right notebook, Rebecca, then I will be more productive. Mm-hmm. If I get the right format, or what about this pen and notebook combination? <laughs> this will be the notebook that finally takes me over from being an agent of chaos to being a cool customer who That's has it. all their stuff. That's how you convert from chaos Muppet to order Muppet is find the right like pilot yeah. G2 pen. A $200 gift certificate to Levenger and I'm all set. I'm, I'm Dwight D. Eisenhower invading Normandy at that point. I can do anything. Um, it's also interesting. I think we saw this coming... I think this is the first big step into Michelle Obama as a lifestyle brand mm, kind of mm-hmm. a product. Yeah. Um, I think Oprahfication is too strong, but this isn't, this is a, it's a lifestyle product. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's almost a self-help product, right? Yeah. I think it's a really smart recognition yeah, of how people view Michelle Obama and and what they look to her for, like mm. she is clearly bonkers intelligent and very accomplished. And she could write books about 
public policy and public service and, you know, her experience, like some of the experiences she talks about in becoming of like using her legal background to work in social justice situations. And that would also be inspiring and is important. And she continues to be involved in the resistance, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. But like recognizing that people are looking at her for inspiration and for how, what can I learn from this woman for my own growth, like personal growth and my own success professionally with my family, politically, whatever it is. And so turning, turning to guided journals, I think to things like this is really smart. Like if Michelle Obama and Brene Brown would like co-write a thing, I would buy a ticket to the book tour and subscribe to their podcast. I've got news for Brene. (laughs) Don't, don't sit yourself next to Michelle Obama. Right. (laughs) No, I am serious. I love Brene. I do too. The Obama's a, uh, Michelle Obama's a supernova. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's this is really really smart on her mm-hmm. part on the part of her team like whoever had this idea to make this journal genius. Yeah, yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, Five hundred thousand copies. Yeah, and we're still waiting on Barack. I'm sure Michelle's like, I got two in the bank, hun. <laughs> two zip. Oh, two just... zip. Bo. Two zip. Yeah, you know that there's a scorecard there. Um, um, she talks in in her book about how he had to like go to Bali or like a remote beach somewhere to finish the first book when he was working on it. And you know, he's a methodical guy. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I'm looking forward to when that happens, but yeah, we should now take bets on how many books will Michelle Obama have out before Barack's book comes out. Okay. We're going to keep an eye on that and let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right. I think this story, there's not much to it, except that I think it's interesting um, in terms of what the media landscape looks like now. Say what you will about the Testaments, people are interested in it. And BBC Radio 4, I do love that I have no idea how the BBC radio and TV stations, they just get numbers and they have associations, <laughs> but I don't know what. Like, I'm guessing this is the one that's about Margaret Atwood. Do they have one just did it? I don't even know. Um, they're doing an abridged audio reading of Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, the series is composed of 15 episodes that run 14 minutes each each for a total of three and a half hours compared to the full, which is like five times as long. They're only going to be available online for a short time through October 15th. So uh, next week, Monday? What, what day is today? Oh, Tuesday? It says the, yeah, the first one expires October 15th. Oh, oh okay, okay. 
Um, so that might be interesting for those of you who want a taste of The Handmaid's Tale. Maybe we're interested by our uh, discussion of the of uh, excuse me the <laughs> testaments and wanted to you know get the the gist of it without committing to a whole thing and it's free, which is interesting. Yeah. I, why do this? Did how how did how did is the, are they getting paid? What what is the deal? Here, oh, that's think? a great question. Um, either they're getting paid or they paid for it to like oh. You know, so do you think people are going to turn around and buy the book after reading, listening to the, 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 the cliff notes? I just don't know. Like, you know, you've got in the abridged version, like in the abridged version of anything, you get all the main points. You just miss the fine details. You know, it's so like you're going to get the main thrust of all these stories um, and the multiple storylines in the Testaments, I would assume like that. I'm super interested in which direction the money flowed because, you know, the BBC had to have some discussions with Margaret Atwood's publishers about how this abridgment was going to work and what could be abridged. Like who did the abridging, you know, probably yeah. someone at the publisher, um, or the publisher at least had to sign off on it. So is this marketing that Penguin Random House UK paid for um, as a let's give them a teaser and hope they buy the book? Or was the BBC like, hey, why don't we buy the rights from you to do this thing? Because it'll be great for our listenership. Mm. Uh, but so, like, something is going on here. Um I, I'm I'm not sure that it's just like a pure listener service that they were like our listeners would love to listen to three and a half hours of the testaments and it's unless does the does BBC Four do these things a lot and we just don't know because don't know. it's not usually the testaments. Um, if you are listening to this and you know the answer to that, please let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com. Um, it also looks like that the reading that's appearing in the BBC Radio Four is different. It's not just cut up versions of the regular audio book. It doesn't look like it's that either. So this is mm-hmm. a different production. Maybe it was a quid pro quo. We'll do our own reading, give you publicity, but we're also going to use it as content. Maybe. It could be that way. You know, I've also wondered that's related to this. Um, when I actually read The New Yorker, you know, every now and again, you'd get a, an article that was basically an excerpt of a book mm-hmm. uh, or, a, or a short story or a short fiction selection from a book. Do you know which way the money happened in those? Or was it also a I'll scratch your backs and you scratch mine situation? Yeah, I've heard of both yeah. arrangements of that where um, sometimes excerpt offers the publisher gives a publication the excerpt as an exclusive and so the publication presumably gets extra traffic or eyeballs if it's available online um, for people to read that excerpt publishers release those excerpts because they believe it contributes to sales um, mm. and I think anecdotally maybe like one or two excerpts of things I've read online have led to me buying books only nonfiction mm. in my personal use right. case, right. like reading a section of someone's memoir or reading, you know, their essay in the New Yorker leads to like, oh, yes, I will read their entire book when it comes out. Um, I don't know how effective it is. I also don't know if anyone knows how effective it is in selling mm. books um, or if we just kind of believe that that's a thing. Um it's, but there are also cases, I think, where publishers have paid for placement of their excerpts as marketing. Yeah. I wonder, too, it's interesting as an artistic product, this abridged audio reading. It's three and a half hours compared to the 13-hour-plus audiobook. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're Atwood, are you happy that there's going to be a meaningful number of people whose only experience of your thing is this really stripped down version. It's just interesting to me in a million different ways. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I think typically we don't get abridged versions of things no. until the thing is relatively well established. Yeah. Like, um, I, I think there's an abridged version of the Da Vinci code somewhere. Um, but how dare they? I know. <laughs> Which lengthy soliloquy about art history did they cut down to save space? What do these people do? Just go out and cut down trees for fun too? <laughs> They just go out there with a chainsaw. You know what? I'm taking half these down. Yeah, but that thing, and it might not be the Da Vinci Code I'm thinking of. I'm pretty sure it is, though. But that didn't exist until the Da Vinci Code was already mm. a phenomenon of the level of people like wanting to be familiar with it. Actually, now I'm talking myself into understanding why they did this with the Testaments. There's enough people who want to be familiar with it, but don't want to have to have invested the 13 hours yeah. to read the whole thing. Maybe that's what they're going for here. Um 
it's just, it's really interesting. I don't know anybody who's ever bought the book after reading the cliff notes. Like you get the whole reveal in the cliff notes for a thing. That's kind of the point of cliff notes is to not have to read the book. So if you've listened to this three and a half hours, you get the gist. And like one of our contributors, Ra, was saying that they listened to this and they had also listened to um, our episode breaking down the book. So they knew mm-hmm. what was going to happen. They were aware of all of the spoilers and still um, their experience was sort of walking away from this being very underwhelmed. And they were wondering out loud if reading the whole book would have been the same or would have been different. Um, but I just don't know that this is a sales technique. Like we'll tell you all the big points. Yeah. And then if you want to go spend an additional 10 hours fleshing out the details, you can. You know, it'd be a good list um, is books that it's okay to read abridged. Like, because, you know, the classic ones are Moby Dick, War and Peace, mm-hmm. Les Mis, cut out the like social realist wailing, you know, oh, geopolitics yeah. of, you know, mid century like, France. Yeah, there's definitely Dickens abridgments. Yeah, right. I, I, I have to admit, when reading the Testaments, I wasn't like, I didn't think you could cut out. of this and get it, but I just even consider this as a possibility. Also that the episodes are 14 minutes each is, that feels specific, meaningfully specific specific Hmm. to me for some reason that I don't understand. And they expire quick. Like they don't, they're not sitting around forever. So someone thinks there's some reason not to have them up forever, but Mm -hmm. I don't know what what side that's coming from. If you are a secret birdie who knows things about the BBC, please tell us. I feel like we need like a whole flock of birds on this one. If one birdie alone doesn't have all the angles on this. Yeah. A whole flock of bookish birdies. I'll take yes, it. That's good. Okay. Um, you, cho- you choose. You choose. Oh, you man. Choose. I don't want to talk about this, but I think we have to talk all right. about this. Yep. Uh, Columbia County, Georgia. And this is a piece from the Augusta Chronicle. Columbia County, Georgia high school students are going to have fewer options for reading material after three books that were recommended by teachers were not approved by the school district and might not be in the school's media centers at all. Those books are The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, uh, mm. Dear Martin, which is a novel about an African-American private school student who starts a journal of letters to Martin Luther King Jr., and Regeneration, which is about a British World War I soldier who refuses to continue serving and is sent to a mental hospital. Um, the school district has this process in place where each year the District Reading Resources Professional Learning Community, sometimes referred to as the Novel Committee, submits a list of novels recommended for reading in English courses in high schools. Each of those books is reviewed by two teachers who are asked to provide the reading difficulty level and the page numbers of any potential areas of concern, including profanity or sexual content. And specifically, the profanity is anything other than hell or damn. The list is that's in the Bible. You got to keep those. (laughs) Got to keep hell. Yeah. Um, The list is reviewed by the superintendent who the superintendent gets to approve the books or not. And anything that the superintendent, Sandra Carraway, approves then goes on to be voted by the school board. So this year, committee members submitted their recommendations. They submitted them last spring. They were asked in an email on August 6th, which is the day before school began, to provide a list of page numbers of any sex or rape scenes, graphic depictions, or profanity other than hell or damn. Caraway said that after she reviewed the list of books, there were three that she was not willing to bring to the board for approval because of the explicit content. And she said she does not recall having to do this in the past. So she's the one who decided Mm. that Curious Incident, Dear Martin, and Regeneration could not go to the school board for a vote. Um, And she says, as a former English teacher and an English major, when we're charged with educating children, people's children, we act in the place of parents. And it's our decision to decide does the literary value of a novel outweigh areas of concern. Just like at a sporting event, we do not let them play music with explicit language. They either have to play music that's been cleaned up or not play those songs. Here's the kicker, Jeff. Mm. Caraway said the district does not have a process to decide what books are allowed. We've talked about this as being sort of the second evolution of our paying attention. This mm-hmm. is how many soft targets there are. Yep. Yep. That there's not a guideline. It can be done in secret. You don't need approval. It's voluntary and so on and so forth. And this is a situation where we have a single gatekeeper who basically can allow and decide. I mean, Dear mm-hmm. Martin is an important book. 
Yes. Curious of Vincent the Dog in the Nighttime is one of the few books you're going to encounter at, at any age. A popular mm-hmm. book about someone that's neurodiverse yep. um, and treated with something like respect. And then this other one I know nothing about, Regeneration, about a British World War soldier refuses to continue serving sent to a mental hospital. I mean, that's basically a conscientious objector that's treated as if they're, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they have a mental disorder. These all feel political in a way that's not yes. just about there being an F-bomb on page 91. Yeah, and it's interesting here. Um, Caraway says, quote, we absolutely recognize that we should have a process because books like Dear Martin and the content in that book, it's not a book that we would want sitting on a shelf. Um, and that we is very interesting that it's unless this article is not correct, that she's the one who mm-hmm. decides if a book even goes to the school board for voting or not, um, that we is a misnomer. She's talking about herself. Right. She decided that she does not want this sitting on a shelf and that the school board shouldn't even vote on it. And here's also where it gets very suspect. The, there were 14 books that were presented to the board for approval in September. They included <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> Into the Wild, which is a tough hang in many levels, mm. and the classroom edition of The Martian, which includes the F word in many, many occasions. I think even on the first page. Well, there's that YA version of The Martian, and I don't know if that's what the classroom edition of The Martian is referring to, and I think well, it is cleaned up, but... it, it Well, yeah. yes, but it does say in this piece that it includes the F word on multiple occasions in the classroom edition. Um, yeah, there's some and, weird writing, some of which the, also contain, I don't know, one of those yeah, books has an F word and it wasn't yes, stricken and is the point. Yeah. The board approved all of those books. So... So strange. It's super strange. Um, this seems like, uh, yeah, like exactly what you were summarizing earlier that this is the sort of new direction that attempts to keep books out of classrooms and libraries is going where it's like this, these books did not meet our approval for reasons. And the reasons are vague or unspecified or hidden. And the who our approval comes from is vague or unspecified or obscured in some way. And this looks like this looks like a superintendent making decisions about uh, about values and about what students should or should not learn and about what's appropriate. Um, like she's bypassing process. If you don't give the book to the school board for approval, you have made a unilateral right. decision rather than letting the members of your community who have been elected to that position represent the community's opinions. Um, very and like there's a whole other thing of having you know, school boards approve reading lists. But um, if that's the process that they have, this person bypassing that process based on her judgment, which is clearly inconsistent. Yeah. And that's the inconsistency is the part that I think is the most telling, right? Because if there was like a hard and fast bright line that no book with an F-bomb could be approved and it was unilaterally applied, then you could disagree with that, but you'd be disagreeing with that. It's the some books with and some books without or some books with are let through and some books with aren't. And then it starts to look um, fishy. Yeah, right. right? That's Notably, when it starts to look fishy. <laughs> Jurassic Park, Into the Wild, and The Martian are all books about white people. White people, right. Yeah. White, cishet, mm-hmm. um, neurotypical, so on and so forth. Um, tough hang. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you can get involved with in locally. Like school boards, famously... School board commissioners have a lot of power and a, a squeaky wheel in the other direction on this can change minds. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I hate to talk about it too. All right, last sponsor, and then let's uh, do a couple more. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santángel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. 
And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay. I, you know, and look, this is one thing as I've done this job that I've come to realize more and more as a heavier and heavier user of the library. It's incredible what we ask libraries to do. The, mm-hmm. the, the gaps in society and culture that we ask the library to fill in, whether it's homelessness or tax prep, technology help, all sorts of things. And this goes in this bucket. I never thought about this before. It makes all the sense of the world, given that libraries have become in a lot of ways, you know, a de facto embedded social services organization in many communities. And this is this relates to that. So the headline here is 57 public libraries were awarded funding to encourage Affordable Care Act enrollment. Um, there's a health insurance enrollment education initiative, Libraries Connecting You to Coverage. The PLA is encouraging enrollment. So this is coming from the PLA. These aren't federal dollars or government dollars. This mm-hmm. is the PLA funding its libraries to get people enrolled into the health, Affordable Care Act health insurance marketplace for 2020 because of all the vagaries of health insurance that we, you and I, know more about now than we ever wanted to since we run, <laughs> help run a company is a limited thing and there's all kinds of caveats. And it is freaking hard to navigate. And I can only imagine the kind of help people need. I need help sometimes mm-hmm. um, navigating these things. And I have to do it semi-professionally. So for consumers in states that utilize the federal marketplace platform, healthcare.gov is open enrollment begins November 1st, 2019 through De- December 15th, 2019. Luckily, there's a six... You get four months to do your taxes, but six weeks to um, uh, enroll in healthcare. That's cool. Um I'm, that's not at all cool. I, I don't want to <laughs> undersell that. There's going to be a link in the show notes where you can see the the, the libraries um, that are participating here. It, it looks like a pretty wide swath. Mm-hmm. Um, Los Angeles, Colorado, New York, California, Kansas City. It looks like there's not multiple libraries in the same city to me. So yeah. y- if you want to use this or tell someone about it, you have to find what's the closest one. Um, it doesn't say here... Exactly what the funding is it additional staffing? It's fifty five hundred mini grants. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe just to to get some training, make some photocopies, put up some bulletin boards. You know, someone who knows how to help someone who comes and asks questions. You know, it doesn't sound like it's too much, but they're doing something. This is this is great, and I wish is the kind of thing libraries didn't have to do. But if it's libraries or bust, I'm glad it's libraries. Yeah, it sounds like real recognition of the additional work that libraries and librarians mm-hmm. are doing that's not specifically around people's reading lives, that people show up in libraries to use the internet. One of the ways they're trying to use the internet is get enrolled in the health insurance marketplace. And they're probably asking librarians a lot of questions about that. Um, my only, I, I think it's great to see this happening. I wish these mini grants were for more than $500. Yeah, like, right. let's just pay the librarians and give the libraries money to do these kinds of things. But it's it feels like real progress. Like, you start with this, and maybe the grants get bigger, and maybe lo- more libraries get them. And we work our way towards a system that does fund public libraries appropriately mm-hmm. for all of the work that they do. Well... I don't want to get into this part, but this current administration probably would not care if this goes super well, but it could be that this is a 
pilot project for some larger mm-hmm. initiative, yeah. like with your tax forms. I think all, every library I've ever been in, you can go in and get mm-hmm. your tax forms at least. In some future version um, of the world in which there may be federal dollars to support the ACA, you could see this being like in the fall, yeah. in the spring, you do your taxes, you can go to the library if you need help. And in the fall, you can go to the library to help with your health care. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a beautiful dream. And in that situation, there'd be a lot more money. But I think it would pay off. I really I think, think, so think it really would. Hero of the week, and let's get out of here. All right. Yes. We got two heroes of the week this week. They are Andrea Liao and Sabine Wood. Um, They are students at Interlake High School in Washington. And this is a great piece from The Atlantic. Andrea started an organization called Book the Future that um, collects books and gets them to people who need them in her community. And Sabine had been looking for a way to get involved in literary activism. She had been investigating for herself how to start a nonprofit and was overwhelmed by the amount of like paperwork that was going to be involved. And then she heard about Book the Future and realized that Andrea goes to her school and they <laughs> met each other. And like so they met and uh, Sabine started volunteering with Andrea and helping her do this work and they became best friends and the Atlantic interviewed them this week for a story called or for a running feature that the Atlantic does called the friendship files. And so they they get interviewed by the, by Julie Beck, who is from the Atlantic and they um, talk about how they met and the significance of their friendship. And this specific interview focuses on their work volunteering together and using this organization to bring books to mm. people who don't have as much access um, to books. It is very good for the soul in a like, Oh, the kids are going to be okay. Kind of way. Hats are off to you. May all of your efforts succeed. Andrew May they all and succeed. Sabine. All right. That's our show. As always, you can hear or find links to the stories we talked about, bookwright.com slash listen. Um, we need birds about testaments, Atwood, Audible. We got some bird questions for you. Let us know, <laughs> podcast at bookwright.com. And we're going to be back. The next episode is going to be a deep dive into the no- double Nobel and then you know some surrounding discourse. Maybe we'll play a little game of... I got I got an idea for Rebecca. I got, th- yeah. I got a curveball ready for Rebecca. Um, <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> well, at least you know it's coming. You know, well, you know, a I'm good hitter. Out knows, of... If a good hitter knows a curveball's coming, they can mm-hmm. they can hit that in the outfield. Uh, I'm coming out of the hottest take I've ever shared on the internet from our previous <laughs> mini episode about the Shawshank. How Redemption. much you hate the movie Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> it's really tough look. Tough look. Don't for throw you. me under that bus. Jeff no, O'Neill. that's all right. Okay, um, and that's our show. We will uh, talk to you guys soon. Have a good one.